0: It's time to take the quiz. Five questions, five minutes a day, five days a week. Take the quiz every weekday at thequiz.fox and then listen to the quiz podcast to find out how you did. Play, share, and of course, listen to the quiz at thequiz.fox.
1: I'm Bill Hemmer. This is Hemmer Time. Trey Yinkst, our correspondent in Kabul, Afghanistan. Welcome to the program, Trey. Bill, thanks for having me. You have an unbelievably unique perspective on a global event in real time. And for the sake of our conversation, I want the audience to know that oftentimes on TV, we do not have the time to allow you to tell us the stories behind the scenes. And that's what this conversation is all about today. And and I want to begin, Trey. You were in Doha, Qatar, waiting for a flight to Kabul. you fly into Afghanistan earlier in the week. The Taliban meets you at the airport. What do you recall from that arrival? Let's start there.
0: Yeah, we arrived in Afghanistan earlier this week, and I remember looking out the window of the airplane at the Kabul International Airport and seeing a convoy of SUVs and pickup trucks with a big white Taliban flag on the runway. The first humans that I saw this time on the ground in Afghanistan, Taliban fighters. And you can see all the images that you want online and in the video feeds and wires that we watch, but when you see these Taliban fighters get out of the trucks and build what they see as a security apparatus for the few individuals that were on this plane to get off and get into the airport and be processed, it is It's something that's difficult to describe because we follow these stories all the time and we're watching every development But you know this feeling well bill when you get on the ground here, and you can really dive into the reporting It's a totally different experience your adrenaline's pumping just by the virtue of being here and being in the middle of the story And starting the reporting you know One part of this story that people don't know much about and that I think the listeners would find quite interesting To get into Afghanistan right now, it's extremely difficult. The Hamid Karzai International Airport, now referred to by the Taliban as simply the Kabul International Airport, is basically isolated. There are a few charter flights a week coming in right now following the Taliban takeover. It's been just over a month since the group took control of Afghanistan. But before we took that flight from Doha, we actually went to Pakistan and we flew from Doha to Islamabad and then went to a smaller city called Peshawar near the border, and we were looking at options to get into Afghanistan from Pakistan. And when we got the call that this flight was going to happen, it's actually quite a a thrilling story. We drove through the middle of the night to get to the airport in Islamabad and back to Doha. It was about a five-hour window that we had to catch this 3.50 a.m. flight local time. And we talked to the team in New York, and my cameraman and I made the, the call, and we said, let's do it. And we drove through the night anticipating that there would be a flight that next morning out of Doha. So we thought we'd have just a few hours in between landing from Islamabad and then taking off again into Kabul. The flight actually got pushed back a day due to conversations with the Taliban and the Qataris. So we had a little bit of time to relax after what was uh, quite a a busy day of, of travel. And then we were able to make it here to Afghanistan earlier this week and start our reporting.
1: Mm. So you're an American. You're born in Hershey, Pennsylvania. You're in your late 20s, I think maybe 28, Trey. Um, You're staying in Kabul. The Taliban is your escort. The Taliban is your security guards. How does that work?
0: Look, I think, and you've experienced this all around the world too, Bill, you have to see these people as human and you have to understand that they have motives and and reasons why they do things and you know right now i'm talking to you from a rooftop in kabul and all the lights are off around me because we're worried about sniper fire not necessarily from the taliban but from groups like isis-k other extremist organizations that are now able to operate pretty freely in afghanistan so you have to take precautions when you're traveling in these parts of the world but I think that when we're actually engaging with the Taliban fighters and interviewing them or or traveling with them, like we did yesterday when we visited a prison on the outskirts of Kabul, you have to just remember that they're human. And despite the fact they may have a very dark past, they may have killed many people, many fellow Americans even, you have to just treat them like people, give them a, a level of respect and try to understand where they're coming from in their conversation, but also remember who they are and you and i talked on on air yesterday about a conversation i had with some of these fighters at the apollo prison and i described it as stunning and actually i would correct that i would correct my statement and i would actually describe their words as jarring because they were talking very freely in conversation like we're having now about killing american troops and they were bragging really about their battlefield victories against nato forces and it's, it's sometimes uncomfortable to, to have these conversations. They're conversations we have to have as journalists because we're trying to learn more about these people on the other side of the world that often we know very little about because it's so dangerous to report from here. But it's part of our job to do that. And so those are conversations and interviews that we conduct and that we have, and then we bring that information to our viewers and our listeners.
1: Yeah, It was a stunning thing to me, and I'll use the word stunning when you said it on the air, and I just just had this thought about, you know, you being an American reporter coming back into that country, and the, the first thing the Taliban wanted was Americans out of that country, and
0: now you come back, and how do they treat you? I mean, right now the Taliban is trying to engage with the international community, so they've been interacting with the media in in quite a bizarre way I would I would say you have to get credentials to report in Afghanistan right now from the Taliban so that involves going to a top ministry office in Kabul and talking to officials there about why you would like to report in Afghanistan and those conversations are are quite interesting we we were at the ministry earlier this week to get our permits to report here and they have a conversation with you about a list of understandings and rules and you you listen and you you take in what they're saying but our role as journalists around the world it doesn't matter where we're reporting is to tell the truth and to be fair and to be accurate and hold those in power accountable so we don't take orders from the taliban when it comes to our reporting and It's quite interesting when they talk about things that they don't like as an organization. Demonstrations, protests, for example. And this one official said, Now, we really encourage you not to cover demonstrations because people may be saying things they're not permitted to say. And if you're there, you may face the music. And he said it just like that, smiling. And it's just one of those sort of bizarre intersections of a group trying to welcome international journalists to report here. But also trying to implement Sharia law. I mean, they are trying to implement an Islamic system that bans music being played. It bans men and women from working together. There are reports of executions in more rural parts of the country. So while they want to engage with the West and they want to be able to allow journalists to report here, and they have allowed foreign journalists to report quite freely so far, it is a balancing act and the real Losers in the media industry when it comes to that balancing act are the local journalists. I mean, we've seen Afghan journalists beat by Taliban fighters. And according to many of the reporters that covered these demonstrations where local journalists were attacked, when Taliban fighters went to target foreigners, other fighters stepped in and said, whoa, 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 don't uh, don't do that. Those are foreign journalists. So they are making some effort to protect foreigners because they understand that if you attack a, a foreign journalist, while they're covering a, a demonstration, there will be international consequences because all eyes are on Kabul right now. And the international community wants to see how the Taliban will maintain security and control.
1: Well, wow, okay, you said a lot there. I just wanna, I just wanna make this one point here. Okay. 30 years ago, if you were in the former Soviet Union, if you were in East Berlin and you started your day and you wanna, if you were in North Korea today, especially, and maybe even if you were in Havana, Cuba today, you would have a government minder who would watch you the entire time. Based on your answer, it doesn't seem like that is the case. That, that, that strikes me as unusual. Do you not have to clear what story you want to pursue on any particular day there?
0: It's not the case, actually. We travel quite freely in Kabul. Uh, today, for example, we went out to visit a few different ministries, uh, gather some supplies, and shoot a brief interview in a... A stand up in front of a bank because there were a lot of people outside trying to withdraw money. And while we were out, we engaged with Taliban fighters. One came up to us and said, hey, you can't film here. And then ultimately we were able to shoot our report and then come back to the hotel. But there are no Taliban members with us all the time. If we're shooting a specific story in a secure area, like a prison, for example, they will be with us, but I'm very clear about my journalistic standards. and. I don't care if someone has an AK in front of me, if they've got a bunch of weapons around and if they're trying to intimidate us. That doesn't scare me. I mean, our role as journalists has nothing to do with propaganda, it has nothing to do with telling one side of the story or to make this group look good. It's to tell the world what's happening here and to hold them accountable for their actions. And and look, they won't always like that. And sometimes it can be a security risk to report the truth here and to and to roam freely and and cover what we believe is the news of the day. But we're committed to doing that. And it is quite interesting to have the freedom to travel where we'd like to go without anyone from the Taliban with us. But it is important to note most of the locations that you get to when you finally arrive, Taliban shows up quite quickly. And sometimes they want to interfere with what you're doing. Other times they're allowing you to report quite freely. I mean, in this prison, we arrived with no prior arrangements to get there. We got to the gates of the facility on the outskirts of Kabul and you have to drive through some pretty dodgy areas to get there. But this was a story I I envisioned that I wanted to tell to our audience because I I felt the images would be very powerful and it would also give a, a firm understanding of what the Taliban did when they got here. And there were just guys with weapons standing outside and our fixer walked up to them, started talking to them. I introduced myself and spoke through a translator, and I said, look, we're here to report. And they said, you're going to make us look good? And I said, no, I'm going to tell people what's happening here. And they said, okay. And they let us in, and and we spent uh, over an hour there reporting Mm -hmm. and and doing our job and bringing this story to the viewers. Is your fixer, I'm assuming
1: he or she is Afghani, is he or she Taliban also?
0: No. Um, So our fixer is a local Afghan works with media, but no affiliation to the Taliban. Okay, um, and, and, So that in itself can be quite interesting.
1: And the prisons, uh, it was our understanding that many of these prisoners were let out across the country. Uh, was that the case with the jail that you went to? Was that the case with the jail that you
0: went to? Yeah, it was. There were thousands of Taliban fighters at the Polish Arki prison where we were. They were all released when the Taliban came into Kabul and took over. The prison right now has some small criminals people who were arrested for stealing or uh, maybe assault, but no large murderers or or terrorists like previously you would have seen Mm -hmm. in a prison like this. And it was like this across the country. I mean, the Bagram Air Base prison had al-Qaeda fighters and Daesh, ISIS militants, and they were all let out when the Taliban made their way through Afghanistan i've
1: seen some videos online just about every day this week it's difficult to verify but if indeed they're true and they're taking place in the countryside outside of kabul or even in kabul sometimes it's um it's it's a brutal picture and i i I just i see women get whipped on the street broad daylight it's just do you encounter women on the job or on the street
0: or on a story there are very few women out in kabul you see them but if you see a woman in Kabul, she either has a hijab on or a burqa. I think part of it is just fear. The people here know the reality and the images that you and I have seen, they've also seen and they are fearful. If they go out, they could be one of those women who are, are beat or told to go home simply, told to leave university or their job. And so that is is, is quite a unique uh, scenario. I'll give you one example though, especially when it comes to foreigners. There was a a meeting earlier today, an off-camera meeting that uh, ultimately turned into an on-camera interview for us with Anas Haqqani, uh, one of the Haqqani family members, one of the most dangerous men in Afghanistan. And there was one woman in the interview room, in the the room where we had this initial conversation. And she was able to engage with this uh, senior Taliban member quite easily, but she is a foreigner. It would be quite different if she was a local and she probably would not be able to just wear a hijab and, and be able to interact quite easily just covering her hair.
1: Mm-hmm. Well, In 2001, going back 20 years, uh, I read where less than 5% of the country had electricity, and, and today 100% of Afghanistan does, which, if that is the case, that is that is remarkable. And many of them use ATM machines now. Are the banks working? Is, is there a system in place? Or um, are the people who are still there in for a very difficult road here, Trey?
0: People are terrified about what comes next in Afghanistan. We were at that bank earlier today, and there were probably 50 to 75 people outside waiting to get in and withdraw money, but the banks have basically implemented a limit. You can only withdraw around 200 US dollars every time you're there. And there's a system set up where basically they'll call your name, and if you don't make it into the bank that day, you have to come back another day to make your withdrawal. And so there was a guy with a megaphone outside announcing the names of people who were on basically a waiting list. And one man that we talked to there said he had been to the bank over the weekend and wasn't able to get inside and withdraw money, so he came back today. And, I mean, that's a situation that's not isolated to Kabul. I mean, we're seeing similar scenes across Afghanistan. People don't know what's going to happen to their money. And we've heard stories from a lot of Afghans we talked to about friends they have who fled to neighboring Pakistan with thousands of dollars in their bank account here and they were that scared that they just left the money behind and got out of the country
1: Hmm. I believe it Um, Um, by my observation there are four internal forces at work in Afghanistan today the Taliban that we've talked about um, to a lesser degree Al Qaeda I would argue and ISIS K as well and then you've got the Haqqani Network, which has basically served as, I, I think, the easiest way to describe it, and correct this if you have a better description, uh, they are almost the mafia for commerce. And now they have positions of power in that government. How would you frame all that?
0: Um, the Haqqani Network is quite interesting. And there were a lot of questions to the Biden administration as the Taliban worked their way through Afghanistan. And it became clear they would be the ones in control of this country. I remember ned price the state department spokesman was asked about this very question and he said well the biden administration is looking at the differences between the haqqani network and the taliban basically he didn't want to talk about this being a very dangerous faction of the taliban and i'll give you the the interview that we had today with anas haqqani one of the younger members of the family he's 28 years old and he is responsible for hundreds of suicide bombings the man directly responsible for ordering them and that really gives you a sense of who now has power in this country i mean there are moderate taliban members here but there are also very extreme members and even in our interview i mean you heard this in our report on fox news channel he talked about the fact that Afghans wanted the Americans out so badly, that's why they were launching suicide attacks. I mean, these are very, very serious people, people who are responsible for the deaths of hundreds, if not thousands of people. And there were a group of journalists in the hotel talking about how interesting it was actually to have an Ashaqani in the hotel that we are at because Previously, the Taliban had launched attacks against this very hotel, and he was sitting next to a pool table, just talking about his day and the new government as if nothing was wrong. But the Afghan people have a long memory, and they know the brutality of this organization and some of the atrocities that the Taliban has committed in the past, and they're fearful. Mm -hmm. People who worked with the United States, with NATO, they are worried and they are scared for their lives.
1: Did Haqqani make any reference to ISIS-K, ISIS-Khorasan, in your interview?
0: He did not. And what's interesting is we've seen the Taliban try to distance themselves from that ISIS-K attack that happened on the 26th outside of the Kabul airport that killed 13 U.S. service members and dozens of Afghan civilians. The Taliban is very clear and I think will continue to be very clear that they want nothing to do with the association of that attack. They very quickly came out with a statement after it happened blaming the Americans for allowing this bomber into that part of the airport. The reality was was quite different. It was their security on the outside of the airport that was responsible for vetting people before they got there. Um, but Akani did not talk about ISIS-K. They, they are enemies with, with ISIS-K. So they, it's an interesting, intersection between extreme organizations here because they are long enemies of ISIS-K and they want to distance themselves from the group. I think what will be interesting in the weeks and months to come, how much they crack down on the organization because there are still ISIS-K cells operating all around Kabul. And to be very clear, um, without, without describing the types of attacks that worry me, because I don't want to give terrorists any ideas the biggest fear as a foreign journalist that i have operating and reporting in kabul is actually not the taliban it's groups like isis k it's these sleeper cells that operate around the city that could target foreigners and and that i think is the biggest threat right now to the journalists that are operating in afghanistan and also the foreigners that were left behind
1: Mm -hmm. i didn't want to say it you did it for me um i trust you have the best security possible given the current circumstances. How many other media outlets are there working nearby or in your hotel or how many people are there from the western world?
0: There's a handful of western media here and they're able to operate. Like I said, the Taliban has been actually quite accommodating to foreign journalists when it comes to travel. It was interesting hearing Haqqani earlier today speak off-camera to these journalists it was on the record but off-camera and he said through his translator everyone sort of chuckled hey if you need anything you know we can provide security for you and I mean a lot of these journalists have been covering this story for a long time they know the Haqqani family well but he was serious he they would like to show foreign journalists other parts of Afghanistan and we found a similar experience when we were in that prison they were not threatening to us Um, they were allowing us to operate freely and and do our job as reporters, despite the fact that you have these interactions and these conversations that can be uncomfortable sometimes when they ask you, hey, are you going to report positively about us? And you have to explain, no, that's not our role as journalists, but we will report fairly and accurately. Um, But when it comes to foreigners here, there are still a, a small group of foreign journalists operating in Afghanistan. I think that group will continue to get smaller as international attention shifts away, as it does with every major story around the world. Um, but I think that we have a responsibility as journalists who were covering this story before the Taliban took over, through the Taliban takeover of the country and, and after, to continue to give a voice to those here who don't have a voice, to to hold the government, the Taliban government, accountable for their actions, and to make sure that we are shining lights on what unfortunately appear to be human rights ac- atrocities that are starting to happen across Afghanistan.
1: Man, it's a remarkable story. You're listening to Trey Yingst, our foreign correspondent, Fox News channel embedded in Kabul, Afghanistan. Our conversation continues next.
2: Hey folks, it's your man, Keyshawn Johnson here to talk about Angie, formerly known as Angie's List, your go-to home services, marketplace for getting all your jobs done well. Now you might be wondering, what exactly is Angie? Well, let me tell you,
1: back with Hammer Time and Trey Yings. Trey, thank you so much for your time. This conversation, a lot of listeners will be hearing it over the weekend, and we are discussing this on a Thursday afternoon. And I've, So many thoughts come to my mind when, when I hear you talk about the Taliban and describe them. And what they want the world to think is that they're Taliban 2.0. You've been back there for a week to watch it? Is it 2.0 or not?
0: Look, I think this Taliban would like to be considered a new version of itself. I think some of the interactions that we are seeing are different from the past Taliban. We're not so far seeing the the types of interactions with foreigners, for example, that we we saw in the past. I mean, previously the idea of Americans sitting down in a room with a senior member of the Taliban just would have been unheard of. I mean America was in Afghanistan for 20 years, primarily fighting the Taliban alongside the Afghan security forces. And so you're seeing those types of interactions that are new. I think the Taliban understands that they will be isolated by the international community if they commit broad human rights abuses. So they're making attempts to to at least appear like they will, will turn over a new leaf. But I think... What really struck me when I had a conversation with a a local here, and he said to me very helplessly, he said, they don't know what's happening outside of Kabul. They don't know. And he was talking about they, the West, the Americans, the Europeans, because we actually don't know what's happening in a lot of these other cities, Herat, Kandahar, the second and third largest cities in Afghanistan, but a lot of the smaller places that media simply Can't get to, or there isn't a large enough press corps on the ground to get to. And the limited reports that we are seeing out of these places are quite concerning. People being executed, Afghan pilots being targeted by the Taliban. The rule of law is far less stable outside of Kabul, and we know that. Um, If there are opportunities to get out of Kabul and report in these areas, we will, but look as accommodating as the Taliban claims they would like to be to reporters, no organization around the world, and we have reported in places like Lebanon, Iraq, Gaza, no organization that is operating in a a fashion like the Taliban is operating wants there to be a spotlight shined in their darkest areas. And so I think we have to keep that in mind when the Taliban says, well, we're looking for a new version of ourselves in Afghanistan that may be the case in part in Kabul but the rest of the country will have a different story
1: just a few more questions Trey the chaos in Kabul played on our TV screens here in the United States prominently toward the end of August for several weeks actually have any Afghans come to you and expressed their misgivings for how that was unwound that 20-year presence
0: People are definitely frustrated with what happened. And I think there's a common sentiment around the world. You know, we've talked to our sources stateside, in DC, for example, and also locals on the ground here and in Pakistan. And there isn't necessarily a criticism that you hear often about if American troops should have gotten out of Afghanistan, it's how American troops left Afghanistan. We talked to a group of university women from Kabul University when we first got to Doha almost a month ago, and these young women were frustrated because they said, how did the United States not see what would happen? And they were frustrated because they wanted to finish their degrees. They wanted to stay living in Kabul where their family and friends are at. And while the United States is not their government, they grew up with the Americans here. They knew the role that the United States played in terms of providing a level of security and safety for the Afghan people. And they understood that when American troops left the country, that the Taliban would likely take over. And these young women described the feeling as being nauseous, sick to their stomachs, knowing that once American forces left Afghanistan, it would be basically a free for all. And I don't think anyone thought that the Afghan security forces would give up as quickly as they did. I think everyone was caught off guard from the top levels of the Biden administration and the military brass in the United States to the average Afghan. I mean, people that you talk to here describe this free for all. And actually this is, is quite interesting. I'll give you a, a few of the stories that we, we gathered on the streets today that we really haven't brought into our reporting, but actually painted really interesting picture about the days after the Taliban took over. We all remember those images from the airport in Kabul of American military planes taking off, people clinging to the outside of these flights trying to get out of Afghanistan. And there's a frustration actually among the Afghan population in Kabul, specifically special immigrant visa holders and those who applied for these visas. So those people helped the United States in the past. They were able to work with Western troops, or NATO forces to fight the Taliban, and they understand now they will be the first ones targeted. But they say the initial people on the planes out of Afghanistan, on these American military flights, where we saw these people flood into the back of C-17s, were actually not visa holders. They were just random civilians who made their way to the airport. One man described it to me, he was like, imagine just selling grapes on the side of the road and then hearing that the Taliban took over the city. Well, you don't have any responsibility because all you're doing is selling grapes. So you can simply rush to the airport, get on a plane and get out. And he said there were thousands of people who did not have the correct paperwork in the early days of the evacuations who made it out of Afghanistan. And he was angry because he said he helped American troops for years. And a random shopkeeper, how he described it, a random shopkeeper could get out and get to safety while he's trapped in Taliban territory.
1: Mm -hmm. If they were lucky enough to get to the airport and catch a ride, literally. And the Biden administration has bragged repeatedly about getting 120,000 Afghans out of there, uh, and Americans, um, maybe to the count of 5,000 out of Kabul. But you're right, a lot of them did not have the right paperwork. They were just lucky enough to get to the airport in time i i think there are reports about an internal struggle within the taliban or even between the akhani network for power we'll see how those reports unwind i could make it for a rocky road ahead does the media survive in this version of taliban 2.0 slash afghanistan we'll see over time with that as well but just two final questions here and I'm, i want to come back to the end about your location there on the rooftop there and nighttime Um, but before i do that what do you think the world needs to understand about the story you're
0: on now i think the world needs to understand that the taliban does not represent the afghan people there are artists scholars doctors lawyers brothers sisters moms dads soccer players basketball stars humans here in Afghanistan, millions of them, that have nothing to do with the Taliban. That if they had it their way, they'd be in the United States or somewhere else in Europe traveling and maybe having a cup of coffee with friends at a cafe. And they're now living amid the Taliban. And I think it's important to remember that while we cover this Taliban takeover of Afghanistan, the people who pay the highest price are the Afghan civilians who can no longer listen to music, who can no longer go to a play unless it is about the Quran? They can no longer freely walk through the streets feeling safe and secure, and they can't go on vacation. You know, they can't study in university with their friends of the opposite sex. They are living in an Afghanistan that is years behind what this country was, and years behind what it could have been. And it's really, I mean, the only way to describe it is it's sad because dreams were literally crushed and taken from people overnight. And there's nothing that really the world can do. There's there's nothing Mm -hmm. that the world can do for the millions of these people. There's a level of support that can be provided, a level of humanitarian support that can be given to the Afghan people. But that's simply for surviving, not for thriving and not for living. Wow.
1: It's so profound the way you describe it, too. And in a country of 35, 38 million people, I I read fewer than 100,000 are members of the Taliban. If that's the case, they're in a severe minority, but they have the power, as you describe. Are those numbers accurate, by the way?
0: Yeah, those numbers are are accurate. It's tens of thousands of Taliban fighters and millions of civilians. Some who do support the Taliban, but many who do not.
1: Yeah. To close our conversation, Trey, thank you for your time. My best to you and um, our colleagues there who are working to bring us a story that unfolds literally by the hour still. But you described at the beginning of our conversation, standing on top of a rooftop in the dark, uh, for fear of sniper fire as you look out right now. What do you see there in Kabul? What is the scene as night has fallen there? I'm imagine it's seven or eight o'clock in the evening now
0: Yeah, there's a hillside with many lights on it and a mosque off to my right You can hear the chatter of some people in a market right across the street from where we're doing our reports but it's pretty quiet actually the scene across Kabul is is very different from the days when the Taliban took over. There were images and video of gunfire into the air, celebration as the Taliban basically made their way into the Panjshir province, one of the last areas held by opposition and resistance fighters. Those scenes are no more. Right? I mean, right now, Kabul is, is eerily quiet because The Taliban is in control and they bring a level of security to the Afghan capital. But that security comes at an extremely, extremely high price. And you will hear this over and over again from the Taliban tomorrow morning. You'll see many Taliban fighters making their way to mosques across the city, laying down their weapons to pray. But it it is not a a free society anymore. The people that we talked about a little bit earlier, Bill, the people who had dreams and on a night two months ago in the Afghan capital might be out at a cafe with their friends having fun listening to the latest Western pop song that came out, will no longer be able to do that. And if they'd like to, they may be arrested, tortured and even killed. And that's the reality that the Afghan people now face with the Taliban in control.
1: Mm. Trey, you be well, okay? Be safe and best to all of our colleagues there working that story in Kabul. Trey Yingst, Fox News foreign correspondent. Thank you. Thank you. I'm Bill Hemmer. This is Hemmer Time.